is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. Pfizer has the antiviral COVID pill. Is it the game changer we've been waiting for? A plea from a doctor who's fully vaccinated and boosted yet still got COVID-19 for a second time. California with the indoor mask mandate again. Is anybody going to enforce it? And we're facing a nationwide teacher shortage as American children are trying to recover from a year of virtual learning. First, Pfizer's antiviral pill. Company's data shows it dramatically reduces severe illness, hospitalizations, deaths, shows promise against Omicron. Dr. Ravi Gupta, internist at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. So, doctor, what do you make of what we're seeing? Hey, thanks for having me. It's nice to be back. Um, so this is exciting news um, uh, about the new drug that Pfizer uh, has studied. Um, and what I'd like to say, actually, before we uh, get into the data, is just that what we know about the drug thus far is based on a press release only that Pfizer has released, but that it, the data itself has not yet been uh, reviewed by the FDA, nor has it been peer reviewed by other scientists. So uh, we have to be a little bit careful about what the results actually show. Um, having said that, uh, the, the press release does show that there is a potentially a dramatic effect. Um, on what we care about, which is to reduce hospitalization and death uh, if you've taken this pill in time. So what kind of patient would get the Pfizer pill? And would that be different, a different patient than might get the Merck pill, which has a competing pill, works differently and has some other issues, which we may have time to get into a little bit later. But, but is there a difference between the patient population for each one of those pills? Yeah, that's a great question. So with, uh, with Pfizer's pill, uh, they studied uh, in the trial a very specific patient population. So the Pfizer pill is, has been studied in individuals who haven't been vaccinated and have never had COVID previously and have, they need to have been given the pill within three to five days of the onset of their symptoms. And they also need to have been, um, they also, so they have to have been tested and been confirmed to have uh, had the infection. Let's say, though, you are a vaccinated person, you get a breakthrough case, you go to your doctor because you're symptomatic, he tests you or she tests you, and yep, you got COVID. Would this be something that would go to you if you're in a higher risk group? And that's, you know, we don't want a bad breakthrough case to happen. There's a slight, slight chance of it. So let's just give you this pill and, and maybe you'll be even better than before. Yeah, that's the question. Um, but I don't think we necessarily know that yet based on the trial that uh, that Pfizer has uh, released its uh, results on. The other trial, the one that you're talking about, where, uh, say, there is a vaccinated individual who is at high risk of developing COVID, that's ongoing. We don't necessarily know the final results or even based on press release. I alluded to uh, the Merck pill and potential side effects, and the reason I did is because the Merck pill, as I understand it, it fundamentally works differently than the Pfizer one. And there is some concern, is there not, among researchers on the Merck pill because the way it, it interacts with one's DNA? Um, yes. Well, so with the Merck pill, one of the main things that is of concern that the that individuals at the FDA, when they were reviewing the results, what they're also concerned about is potential safety concerns. 
And so that's part of the reason that, um, that there was some hesitation in terms of authorizing the pill, though it does, it, it did seem to show that there was a 30% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and, and or death. Doc, Dr. Ravi Gupta, internist, National Clinician Scholar, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. No vaccine is 100% effective. We've heard that a lot through the pandemic, especially with the increasing number of breakthrough cases. Dr. Lana Wilder, fully vaccinated, even boosted, just tested positive for COVID for a second time. Uh, doctor, first off, how you feeling? Oh, uh, actually, I'm feeling much better today. Um, uh, I've been just getting better and better over the last few days, and today I feel significantly better. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> okay, so do you consider yourself somebody for whom the vaccines worked? Absolutely. There's no question. Tell us why. Um, well, as odd as it may sound, considering I uh, tested positive for um, COVID twice recently, the most recent time, uh, months after my booster shot, which was my third vaccine, the vaccine, in my opinion, did exactly 100% what it was supposed to do. It kept me safe. It kept my symptoms mild. And it kept me out of the hospital. And it kept me from worrying that something terrible would happen. So I, I think it was, I think it's a, it's a miraculous thing. And I'm very glad that I had it. Yeah. What was going through your head after that second positive test in terms of worry versus surprise? I mean, the kind of emotional aspect of I know I'm boosted, but here it is because I'm feeling kind of funny. And now I've got my answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was kind of interesting because on, let's see, I, I can't remember exactly which day, but I started to feel a little bit crummy, um, had a little mild cough, but oddly, I just kind of thought I had a migraine. I just wasn't feeling very good. Um, I, I actually went into work because I didn't, in my mind, I couldn't imagine that I was actually sick. Uh, uh, and then later in the afternoon, one of the other doctors said, you know, you don't look so good. You look tired. You should go home. Went home, got in the car, started coughing very badly, and I thought, you know, uh-oh, <laughs> I started to feel like I felt when I had COVID the first time. And so I stopped by the store. I picked up a over-the-counter, uh, you know, behind-the-counter test, came home. I still really, I mean, I, I, you know, even though I thought I felt it, I just still couldn't imagine it would actually be positive. And it showed up positive almost instantaneously. So my first reaction was, oh, poop. I went and told my husband and my daughter, who's also a healthcare worker, uh, you know, they, they need to put masks on. And, um, yeah, I, I was just kind of in shock for the first day. And then I started to feel worse and worse. So um, <clears throat> I went in and uh, had to go in on like the third or fourth day because my oxygen started to go down a little bit. Um, and I had a chest x-ray and I was negative for pneumonia and the doctors just said, you know, go home, and if you don't feel better, they'll they'll consider the monoclonal antibodies. So, went home and started to feel better. <clears throat> it, it is so shock. There, a little it, bit of shock. Is there anything, if you don't mind me asking, uh, a, a, a personal question? Is there anything because people who are listening are going to be concerned to some degree? Um, is there anything in your own medical background that would make vaccines less effective for you? Oh, good question. Uh, absolutely not. I'm healthy. Uh, the only other 
pre underlying condition I had is I had COVID last year. Um, I don't have any lung problems. I don't have any immune system problems. Uh, and, and honestly speaking, I've seen quite a few healthcare workers with breakthrough infections with very similar experiences to mine, vaccinated, double vaccinated with their booster, who come, who were exposed, test positive, either have no or very mild symptoms, and not a single one has ended up with severe, that, and this is my experience, I'm not saying nobody does, but in my experience, I have no colleagues that ended up with, uh, that I know of, that ended up with any kind of severe symptoms or hospitalized or anything like that. So absolutely not. No pre-existing condition. Do you feel like what you're going through is something that more of us are going to eventually end up going through? Unfortunately, vaccinated, get this, but then, you know, fortunately, get through it fine? Yeah, you know, I can't, if I could predict i would but i i really can't predict what will happen going forward i mean with the new variants on the, the reports that it's more transmissible even than the delta variant it's of course concerning but uh what i can say is i don't believe that i have seen personally of my patients any vaccinated people in the hospital that doesn't mean there are none it just means that of my patient load all the covid patients are unvaccinated. So uh, again, I, I don't want to speak for anybody else or to claim that there's no vaccinated patients in the hospital. We know that's not true, but it's overwhelmingly unvaccinated patients who are ending up hospitalized and severely sick. Do you know if if the second bout of COVID that you're experiencing is caused by the Omicron variant? N- no, I do not, actually. Okay. Uh, are you also, would you consider yourself uh, and other healthcare workers somewhat atypical from the general population in that you're exposed by the definition of what you do on a daily basis to a a larger viral load, which is important, yes? Well, you know, it's certainly, certainly that sounds reasonable. I will say that the first time that I, that I was exposed and I, and I had COVID, um, which again, I also had a mild case, um, I, I do not believe that I actually acquired that in the hospital or in the healthcare setting. And the reason I say that is because my family tested positive about a week before I did. Uh, and I believe that one of my family members actually acquired it at the workplace where their, their uh, work was not supportive at, at that time of masking or working from home. Um, they were a little, they were a little bit deniers. And so I believe that I acquired it the first time not in a healthcare setting. It's certainly feasible and makes sense that people in the healthcare settings would be more often repeatedly exposed. So that is certainly a possibility. But again, I mean, I really, I, I, I certainly wouldn't claim any expertise in that front. So, Dr. Lana Wilder, thanks for talking to us. Glad you're uh, on the mend now for a second time. Coming up after a short break, California again requiring everyone to wear masks indoors. But will people actually mask up? COVID cases are on the rise, and many of those cases are among the vaccinated. California, once again, requiring everyone to wear masks indoors, at least through the middle of January. But after close to two years of the pandemic, will anyone actually enforce the mandates? Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Medical Director of Infection and Prevention Control at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Doctor, uh, still accurate to call this a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Well, I think what you have to define is what what do our our expectations of what the vaccines will do. And remember that the vaccines are designed 
to prevent serious illness and hospitalization. And that indeed is what they're doing uh, to a very, very high level for those individuals who've received the vaccinations. Right now, predominant, uh, the, the predominant number of people in the hospital with serious illness and unfortunately who are dying from this disease are unvaccinated. That's what vaccines are really designed to do. Are, is there a problem now with the emergence of a variant that is perhaps not as susceptible to our vaccines? Yes, and we certainly did expect that with this particular virus, it mutates and becomes uh, more uh, able to uh, evade the, vac the vaccines a little bit, but it's still holding that vaccinated and especially boosted individuals are much, much better protected against uh, COVID than individuals who are unvaccinated. So then we just hope with everything running around, we keep Omicron at a level where, yeah, even if it gets you post-vaccine or post-booster, that it's mild and we can all handle something mild. Yeah, we hope so. And again, this is, uh, this is you know, a very challenging pathogen. Uh, this is uh, perhaps worse in many respects than the 1918 pandemic because this, this particular virus is so good at mutating and becoming more vicious. Uh, but that the vaccines in conjunction with masking and good social distancing and really just paying attention to things, I think, is going to be what keeps people safe through the holiday season. You know, it's interesting that you just mentioned the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, because uh, I was reading an article earlier today about how many parts of the world people are really asking the question, when is this going to eventually end. And that uh, the 1918 one lasted about a year and a half, as I recall from my readings. Uh, this one does look as if it's going to, well, it has eclipsed it in time, certainly. Are there any signs that it's ending? Well, remember that the 1918 pandemic ended in terms of the number of people that were dying from acute disease at that time. But that virus, the H1N1 influenza virus, has become an endemic virus. We have it very much in our population. Uh, we had a bad outbreak in 2009, if you recall, with H1N1, and that's the same virus. And I think probably to a similar degree, that's what's going to happen with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But it is a different kind of virus. It's a coronavirus. And so it's much more um, uh, able to evade a lot of our techniques. And you know, we are using very sophisticated equipment. We have excellent vaccines against this pathogen. We now have uh, emerging pretty good medications, oral medications. Uh, we are doing really pretty serious mitigation with masking mandates and vaccine mandates and, and lockdowns even in some countries. And yet this thing is still out of control. And that speaks to the power of this particular pandemic and this particular pathogen. Do you hold out much hope for this uh, return of the mask mandate for a month in places where they weren't wearing masks before or for people who weren't really putting them on before? If there's not enforcement and it doesn't seem like there's going to be a great deal of that, um, I don't expect a lot of people to put them back on. Well, I'm always hopeful and I, you know, there's nothing cheaper and easier and perhaps safer than masks. And remember that those of us in healthcare, the N95 masks and the surgical masks that we wore way before we were vaccinated, those prevented us from getting COVID. Uh, so we know that masks work and they are very simple, safe, fashionable. Uh, they're easy to use. We know how to use them. You know, when it rains, you put on a raincoat. So we're in a season now where it's raining virus put on a mask. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to our next segment because I'm curious what your view is on this. We're going to be talking with a woman who is a healthcare worker who was triple vaxxed uh, and has tested positive for COVID, not just once, but twice. As a physician, does that surprise you? No, we see that a fair bit. Um, obviously, if she's a healthcare worker and has a lot of exposure to COVID, then that would be an exposure risk because of her occupation, if that's uh, the, the scenario. 
Uh, we know that some people don't respond to, uh, well to the vaccines. That might be something worth exploring in this particular individual. Uh, but we also know that, you know, with Omicron and some of the other variants that the vaccines after a bit of time can begin to uh, not be as robust in protecting people from getting infected. They do protect people from becoming really symptomatic and getting very seriously ill. And again, that's what vaccines are designed to do, to keep people out of the hospital, to let them power through a you know, moderate illness, but come out on the other side healthy and, and not have to worry about it. Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. With children returning to in-person classes across the country this year, America is asking a lot of its teachers right now. But as is the case with many professions, we are dealing with a major shortage of teachers. Matt Leon of KYW in Philadelphia spoke with Dr. David Timothy, Chair of Education at Delaware Valley University, about the biggest problems teachers are dealing with at the moment. Right now, it feels like it's COVID, right? Um, I've had friends of mine say, I don't want to teach if I have to teach online. Or I don't want to have to teach if I have to teach another year online. Um, you know, every every district uh, administrator I've spoken to can't wait to get back in the classroom. I mean, teachers want to be in the classroom. And, you know, for folks who are moving into modalities that they're not comfortable with, that they're not familiar with, or that they just don't enjoy, I can see how that may accelerate things. But you have to keep in mind that, say, 10 or 15 years ago, we, we were in a very different marketplace, right? Um, talking about... Uh, retirement funds and such. And it was, there was a time maybe 15 years ago when I was in the classroom, we would be sitting around at a, at a party or a happy hour, just shooting the breeze at lunch. And someone would say, I talked to my financial advisor and he said, if I work another year, my monthly, you know, retirement goes up by such and such amount. And they decided to stick around for another year. But, you know, recently it's more like if you work another year, there's no real difference. So if you're, if you're eligible for retirement, it may be valuable to, to just keep your time. You know, back in the day, uh, teachers would would go do their 30 and out, work in an adjacent district or a district outside of the, of the state they live in, work for 10 years, get vested in a second district and get a second pension. That, that drive uh, to continue working past retirement eligibility or the drive to work a second job once you're retired, I think has decreased. Um, there's no real incentive to stick around the job and contribute to your pension much longer. So I think there's a lot of factors that play into that. You know, people talk about the anecdotes of folks leaving the classroom. I've got probably a, a one for one of people who graduated from university with a, a degree in some content and after working for a while decided they wanted to teach and they go back and they teach. They get an emergency cert uh, and uh, or maybe go into an intern cert or a post-baccalaureate cert in order to get into the classroom. They realize they 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 enjoy teaching. They enjoy being around people. Um, and, you know, so I, I work with folks all the time. They come in and, and I say, well, you know, maybe you'd pick up an education minor, see if you like it. And we've had students, you know, change jobs or change, uh, rather change majors for that reason. A lot of folks who wind up in, at the university had a good experience with learning, not necessarily a good, good experience with schooling, but definitely a good experience with learning. They want to continue doing it. And it's not unfamiliar to get a call. Hi, I'm a I'm an engineer, I'm a biologist, I work in a lab, but I think I want to be a teacher. What can you do to help me? And I welcome those calls, point people in the right direction to get into the classroom because we need teachers. So I think that, you know, history is going to going to kind of tease out the details as to why people are leaving the classroom. I think it's a very uh, convenient story to say that folks are leaving because of COVID. But, you know, I've got 
neighbors, friends who are teachers, and one of them just went virtual starting today uh, because there was, you know, a, a COVID uh, positive in their in their classroom. And he just kind of dusts himself off and say, oh, I'll be virtual tomorrow and I can't wait to get back. Um, I think that we are as a whole resilient people. And I think that, you know, the goal of this is to get back to some level of uh, of what we knew prior to the pandemic. I got to tell you, you know, since since the pandemic hit, um, we at DelVal have been live. 75% of our classes were live last fall. Um, we're back to kind of normal amount of classes running in person now. now. That means I'm teaching with a mask on. It means that we're following really strict protocols about, you know, contact tracing and seating in classrooms and space and all those things. But, you know, that's the price I have to pay to teach in person and be able to see my students that I'm willing to do it. And, and it's very clear that students are willing to do it as well. Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, shutting down its campus after what school officials describe as a rapid spread of COVID-19 among students. Close to 500 students tested positive in recent days, and Cornell's president says many of those positive samples contained the Omicron variant. So Cornell students who are in the middle of finals week will take all of their final exams online ahead of winter break. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.